When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. So I was thinking about this. And can I just say that aside from going out to dinner at restaurants, because I I love that and I hate cooking, the number one thing I've missed during the lockdown is live sports. You know I'm a hockey fan. I started teething at an L.A. Kings game in the late 60s. But, I mean, that was my childhood, Los Angeles Kings games. But I adore basketball, both college and pro. And and I've, you know, I've not gotten to see any of that. So what is it like? What's it been like to run an NBA team during the pandemic, to endure a complete freeze of all action for months with no concept of how and when games might begin again, and then suddenly to face nationwide protests of police brutality and racism after George Floyd, an African-American man from Minneapolis, was detained and then killed by police as camera phones captured the agonizing, horrific, eight-minute-long act. All these, I don't know, dark paths have come together for Cynthia Marshall, the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. How she became the first and only African-American woman to run an NBA team is fascinating and inspiring in and of itself, but so is her own personal path. And now the challenge she faces, leading the Mavs organization to a place of illumination on so many fronts. Thank you for tuning into this week's Everyone Talks to Liz podcast because Cynthia is my guest. Cynt, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you for being here. It's just an amazing time in history. Thank you, Liz. It's so good to be here and to hang out with you. How are you doing today? I am well, and now I'm better because, you know, just hearing your voice, <laughs> you sound like <laughs> Mrs. Positivity. Um, I'm so glad you're here for so many reasons, and, and I'm dying to hear about the NBA. We'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, let me just start with how you've been processing these past couple of weeks. Oh, it has been tough, and you know why? And, you know, and you're right. I'm a very positive person, mm-hmm. always optimistic. Uh, but I have two sons, and so my sons are now 28 and 37. And they're the ones who called me and told me about the Amarda Arbery situation and then George Floyd. So normally I'm the one watching the news. I'm the one telling them what's going on. They called to tell me in both of those situations. And they called and they were so sad and they were crying and they were frustrated. And so as a mother, um, it just made me sad to think, oh, here we go again in this nation with all of this on top of a, a pandemic. And so, so that was my first reaction. And then, of course, I had to step back as a leader and then figure out, okay, how am I going to get my team through it? And then we just kicked into what, we, what I normally do as a leader and pull everybody together so we can uh, talk through it. And so I'll tell you, you know, in a bit about just the different conversations we've been having. But it's been, uh, it's been very emotional and heart-wrenching and uh, just trying to process through it all. But I'm optimistic. I'm so optimistic about where we are right now. Well, that's good to hear. But I think just hearing that your two sons 
were all over the story and how upsetting, you know, the Ahmad Arbery story in and of itself is just infuriating to me because nobody knew about it for weeks until right. the video came out. So I'm thinking you have a whole bunch of African-American sons because you're the CEO of an NBA team, which has certainly a share of black players. Yes. I am sure they were equally as infuriated, but it doesn't seem like it was a surprise to anyone. No, Liz, it's not a surprise. It is the country that we live in. And that's what a lot of our employees have, uh, have come to know over the past couple of weeks because I've had, you know, I had my open meeting with my entire staff. We met with the players, Mark met with the players, talked to the coaches, and the eye-opener for some of our folks is that they didn't know this is how, you know, our black men and, you know, black women too, I mean, Breonna Taylor got killed. Uh, this is how people have to live in America. And when you tell stories of racial profiling, which of course my sons have experienced all that, my husband has, when you tell those stories and when you, we talk about the talk that we have to have uh, with our kids, especially our, our boys, uh, that is foreign to some people because some of our white colleagues do not have, most of our white colleagues do not have to have the talk with their kids. And so we're living different experiences because of a handful of people who have just decided that we're going to still be in a world that existed 400 years ago. And um, the experience is real. And I think that's what's been, uh, it's been kind of freeing to be able to tell the stories and to let people know that these things still exist. And then of course, when you watch the video of George Floyd's murder, truly a public lynching, and it took me five or six times before I could watch the entire video because I could not believe we were actually experiencing watching a public lynching uh it's just it was horrific it was horrific and i think it was so horrific that it made everybody stop and say what is underneath all of this it's what did you hear mm -hmm. what what did you hear from the players when you met with them oh the players and in fact we had one of our players and then some of our coaches at a courageous conversation we had a few days ago and they talked about uh, how it is so, it, it, it was so heartbreaking to them, but it also, for many of them, brought back memories of things that have happened uh, to them, of times that they have been stopped, times they've been profiled. It, it reminded them of talks that people have had with them, that their parents have had with them over the years. It just brought, the ones who are African-American, it brought their blackness front and center uh, and for those who aren't, uh, we had uh, one of our players, Maxi Kleber, who's from Germany. Uh, he just said he wanted to understand what is going on here because this is not the experience that he had in Germany. So what is this about? So now this is causing him to really open his understanding and ask questions and just want, you know, he wants to do something to help. So there have just been a range of conversations, a range of feelings. Uh, the coaches came out and talked about some of the things they deal with you know, walking around right now. One said, you know, he puts on his Mavericks clothes all the time just to make sure he's treated with respect and with fairness. So people have been telling stories, but I think it has just stirred up a lot of emotion uh, for African-American men and women. It has definitely stirred up emotion for me. Definitely. You mentioned the talk that you and all African-American parents have with their sons. Yes. How does that talk go? Let's illuminate our listeners who might you know, not see, know. 
it's interesting. I had a colleague at AT&T years ago walk in and said he didn't believe the talk was real. But he said he told his wife, there's one person I know who will tell me the truth, so I'm going to go talk to her tomorrow. So he came in my office and he said, send us the talk real. I said, not only is it real, why don't you just sit down and I'll give it to you. And the talk goes something like, you know what, and this is how my husband starts it. Uh, we do have a, you know, we live in a wonderful country. We live in the best country on the planet. But we have a dark, sordid history of oppression, oppression and racism in this country that goes back to uh, when black people were sold as property. And so we've gone from that to Jim Crow, to the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration, segregation. So he goes on and on. He t- talks about just kind of the, the, what, what has happened. He said, and because of that, there are some people who fundamentally don't believe that you are a full person because you're black. And then he'll tell our sons, there are some people who think that, who will be afraid of you and they don't even know you. So when you're driving, and especially when they start driving, you talk to them. When you're driving and you're pulled over, you put your hands on the steering wheel. You don't take your hands off the steering wheel. If they ask you for your registration, you say, sir, uh, would you like to get it? Uh, my father told me to keep my hands on the steering wheel. And then if they press it, then you make sure they see one hand. And so he goes through the whole thing about how you even get your car registration out. If they get you, tell you to get out of the car, you get out of the car with your hands up. And it's always, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. So he talks to them about being polite. He talks to them about not being out late at night, not being uh, on roads late. I mean, so you just talk to them about where they live in an America that has a history of slavery because you don't know who you're actually coming into contact with. So you just give them, you give them that talk about the fact that some people don't think they are worthy of respect. And then he always gives them a few situations that he's gone through. Uh, I give them situations that I have gone through and you tell them it's real. And once you tell them all that, but you tell them we still live in the best country on the planet and all we can do is pray and continue to uh, try to make progress, but it is real. And we hope and pray that they never experience it, but chances are they will. And then they do. Why are parents decades later still having to give the talk. Why is this happening? Where is the disconnect sent between, we all know this is crazy, that people should look at others like that or not understand that we've moved beyond that? Well, I think it's because, and and obviously I can only tell you what, you know, what I think. I'm not a Mm -hmm. social scientist or a therapist or anything like that. Uh, but I like to focus on systems. I just think we have we have not really dealt with all the systems that cause systemic racism in this country. So biases and discrimination exist in our education systems and our employment systems, our child welfare systems, criminal justice system, you name it. And when it exists in all those systems, you'll never really get past it. You'll run into it somewhere. So if you don't run into it, you know, with healthcare, because your parents have great healthcare, then you will run into it in the, in the criminal justice system if you get stopped by, you know, a racist police officer. Unfortunately, most of them are not racist, uh, but obviously we just saw what we saw, and so some are going to give you some bad treatment. So you're going to run into it somewhere because it's still in our systems. We haven't uprooted it. And then you have some parents who have not talked to their kids. You know, racism is learned. Racism is learned. I had a situation, I was in a grocery store and a little three-year-old came up to me 
little three-year-old, cutest little white boy, came up to me and said, look, mommy, there's a, and he said the N-word. And he looked right at me. I was shocked. And then he kept saying it, and his mom was trying to get him, get to him. So I ran interference, interference, because I didn't want to let her get to him. I said, let me see exactly what he's going to say. And I said, honey, what did you get that? And he says, oh, my dad. And then my granddad. And then he goes on and on, and he gives me all these negative words they are saying about African-Americans. And I just looked at his mother. I said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And then I gave him the lesson and told him, no, black people are nice people. And I told him I was a black woman, so I went through all that, told him to tell his folks, shh, when they say bad words like that. And so we went through this whole lesson, and I thought, this is where kids get it from. It's taught. Yeah, it they're not taught. born racists. No, uh, they're not. They're not. But y- your path to success, you are a meteor that just, to me, knows no bounds. I want to walk it back a little bit to your high school experience as you applied for college you ended up at one of the best schools in the world forget the nation uc berkeley i'm a graduate too uh, yes 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 go bears uh, you got you got the mug i've got my little helmet yeah i'm wearing my, oh, my bears t-shirt yes but tell me tell me that experience because you broke a lot of barriers when you got to cal I did. So, you know, growing up, you know, my parents, you know, just to kind of set it up, my, you know, my parents, I I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. So my parents are Southerners. And so they left Birmingham when I was three months old because they didn't want their kids growing up in the Jim Crow segregated South. So moved to the San Francisco Bay Area and grew up in a public housing uh, project. But my mother said, it's not where you live, it's how you live. And with God, all things are possible. She put a math book in one hand and a Bible in the other and said, you know, keep your head in these, you'll get out of here. And so, and that's what happened. I, the village raised me. I had three teachers and a principal that just poured into me. They saw something there and decided I was going to college. So the village said I was going. Ended up graduating top of my class and got accepted, you know, to all the schools that I applied to and got five full scholarships to the college of my choice. This is a little black girl in the Easter Hill Public Housing Project, zip code 94804. Zip code did not matter. I got a great public education, and I ended up on Berkeley's campus. And you know Berkeley. I mean, I stood there as a 17-year-old kid, Sathergate, you know, the big mm, gate of the campus. I'm taking you back. I know you're going to have some chills, sister. Telegraph. I got oh, it. Oh, Telegraph Avenue. <laughs> so you walk up Telegraph Avenue, you cross Bancroft, Sathergate is right there, the big Campanile. Everything was just so big. And then that's when I realized I had to be big. And here was this great opportunity that all these wonderful people in my life, most didn't look like me, I decided that I was going to have this great opportunity and this great shot at life. So I had a boyfriend, I put him on hold for four years, told him I'll call him the day I graduate from college. I was focused and I meant to get everything out of that education experience and I did. So I ended up pledging a sorority, I was a DG. Uh, It was me and 120 of my white girlfriends uh, (laughs) in the sorority house singing No Man is an Island every Monday night. That's how I learned about teamwork. And then uh, I ended up also being the uh, first African-American cheerleader or song leader, whatever you want to call them, uh, at Berkeley. And that that was a great experience because I didn't realize at the time they had never had, they, you know, they had never had anybody out there that looked like me, you know, and people would come and, you know, I had a big, huge, you know, Afro at the time. And I'm about to grow it back in this pandemic, but so I had (laughs) It's like, I need to get my hair done. But I had this huge afro, so people would come up to me, especially like the, you know how Cal is. 
the, the alumni board, I mean, they, they are just diehard. So yeah. I'd have these 80 year old white men coming up to me saying, can I just touch that, touch that? And I never offended by it, never offended by it. <laughs> because I, I knew it was different. I knew it was something very different. And I worked really, really hard because I wanted to show, once I realized I was the first one, I wanted to show uh, that I was, I was talented and capable just like everybody else. And they made me actually the head song leader too. So, uh, but it was, a, I had a great experience. Uh, at Berkeley, dealt with my share of issues. I mean, my first uh, class as a freshman, uh, I had a teacher give me a paperback one time and said, this is an A paper, uh, but I don't give blacks A's. Oh, come on. Are you at Cal? Progressive Berkeley? My mother still has that paper. He said, because I, I want you to work hard. He said, because you will have to work harder than most people. Because, you know, I, we, were, we represented 1% of oh. the school. It was 300 out of 30,000 students. And he said, I can't give you an A. I'm going to give you a B plus because you're going to have to work hard, and I need you to know now. You'll have to work harder than everybody else. Well, I was just, you know, flabbergasted. You know, I'm a straight-A student. I couldn't believe that. So I had to go and address that, and he ended up changing it to an A, uh, but he got his point across. He said, well, A, I knew it would bring you here into my office. You know, it's a big school, so, you know, it's hard to, you know, people think it's hard to get to the professors, but it's actually not. And he, he wanted to give me that lesson, which... I still appreciate it. I mean, in fact, I was going to say, okay, that's what I wanted to know. Um, I appreciate it because that's when I realized, okay, this is different. I mean, my high school was diverse. I mean, we, we had probably, I mean, honestly, probably 25% Asian, black, white, Hispanic. So diverse high school. I was first African-American and, and female senior class president. So always had opportunities. I mean, people would point me in the right direction and say, go out for this, do that. I would do it. But then I get to Berkeley and we're 1% of the school and I realize, okay, this is different, but I still have skills. People have told me to dream and focus and take action. And so I'm going to do it, but it wasn't always easy, but I did. This is Everyone Talks to Liz and we'll be right back. I know a lot of you have had this experience because for those of us who in 2020 were all sent home and we were stuck in a lockdown during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands and I saw an ad for Masterclass and I thought, I want to better myself. I want access to all of these brilliant people who teach you things. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with more than 200 plus of the world's best and smartest. For just under 10 bucks a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And I don't care, you can wake up one morning and say, I want to learn about business. And then another where you say, I want to learn how to survive in the wild if I have no water and no fire to make me warm. You can access Masterclass on your phone, on your computer, smart TV, or even in audio mode. And the classes totally make a difference. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. After you graduated, you climbed the ladder at AT&T for years and years, and you got, you got pretty high up. What was your highest title you got at AT&T? Uh, when I left there, I was the highest African-American woman in the company. And uh, I guess we had probably 30 female officers, maybe 27 female officers when I left out of a, uh, 250,000 employees. So I was an officer. I, I made it to the highest level 
of the company short of being the chairman. And I guess if I stayed a little longer, I guess I would have been the chairman, but I don't want to. Okay. So 36 years, it's time to go. How? Okay. After 36 years, you say it was time to go. Some people would say I've invested so much. I want to go all the way or I'm too comfortable. I, I don't care what ethnicity anybody is. People get comfortable. What shook you out of that? And how did the Dallas Mavericks opportunity come up? Well, I, I was never comfortable. In my 36 years with the company, I was never comfortable. We moved people around all the time. I had 15 different jobs. So we were always moving. So right. we went from California to North Carolina, there for six and a half years, uh, then moved, you know, moved here into a whole new role. Uh, I, hadn't been, I hadn't been in human resources. I had been out in the field in the technology arena and public policy and all that, uh, but was part of a great team to help actually transform the company. And so then we had had so many mergers, then we bought uh, DirecTV, and then it was like, okay, it's time to go. I said I was leaving at 30 years, but at 30 <laughs> years, I ended up uh, battling uh, stage three colon cancer. Oh. Uh, so I couldn't leave right then because I was battling chemotherapy, so it wasn't time to retire. And then that's when the chairman asked me to come here to Dallas, and we were on a mission. We were on a mission to transform the culture and get some great things done and to get us some great place to work list and all that. And we finally did that. And then it was, it was time to go. I wanted to take a year off, get my, my last daughter out of high school, the next one out of college, and then take a year off. And I started my own consulting firm. And I wanted to just take a deep breath. And then I was actually headed to be the president of a college. Uh, I wanted to either lead a historically black college or a small rural college. I wanted to give kids an opportunity who normally wouldn't have an opportunity, free, extraordinary education. And I guess the Lord had other plans when uh, Mark Cuban ended up uh, calling me. And it was February the 21st. It was the day the Reverend Billy, Dr. Billy Graham died. And I remember getting up that morning and I was writing a blog post on impact because I was being impacted by two different things. Number one, we had the the teenagers who were actually protesting in Parkland, Florida, uh, because of what had happened there. And then the Reverend Billy Graham passed away. And so I was sitting there writing a post about the impact these teenagers were having on my life and the impact that Billy Graham had had on my life, my whole life. And I thought, okay, I'm actually smack dab. You know, I'm like 58 years old. I'm right in the, 57 years old. I'm right in the middle of this. And so after I finished writing that, I was on a call with my client and my other phone rang. I mean, I kept getting text messages. And Liz, I thought it was one of my four kids. Uh. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I thought it was one of my kids texting me for money. Because, you know, that's what they do at that age, right? And yeah. so, and I told my husband, I said, get this phone because one of the, one of the kids need money. So just transfer it, whatever it is. And I kept on with my client. And then he came <laughs> He said, hang up the phone. He said, uh, Mark Cuban is trying to reach you. Liz, don't judge me, okay? Don't judge me. But Who's I, Mark Cuban? Who is Mark Cuban? Ah! I, I didn't know. Okay, I didn't know. And when I think about it, people say, you didn't know Mark Cuban? I said, well, he didn't know me either, okay? He's living his life. I'm living my life. I got four kids. I got a career. I got all kind of extracurricular st- you know, tr- stuff going on with my nonprofits. Didn't watch a whole lot of TV. I didn't know him. That's just the bottom line. And some people don't believe that. I don't care what they believe. I did not know the man. And so when my husband's trying to tell me who he is, and finally he just said, tell your client, you'll have to call him back. It looks like something's going on. Mm. And so when I called him, he asked me if I could come and see him. He told me he was having a crisis and asked me if I had seen, you know, kind of on the news or anything, what was going on. I said, no. And he said, can you come and see me or I'll come and see you? And Liz, you'll love this. I told him, I said, I have a mammogram at two o'clock. 
And I have learned the hard way what happens when you don't keep your doctor's appointment. Mm. I said, I'm a, I'm a stage, stage three colon cancer survivor because I didn't have a colonoscopy when I was supposed to. I said, so I'll have to come and see you later. And so we scheduled it, four o'clock, went to see him. It was storming that day. I went to my mammogram. I came back home. My husband was decked out in Mavs colors, <laughs> head to toe. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Head to toe. Black suit, the blue shirt, the blue gray. And I'm like, what are you doing? He said, I looked up all the colors. And my husband is not a fashion guy, okay? He said, I looked up all the colors <laughs> when you were gone. And th- these are the colors you're supposed to have on. He said, it can't be Golden State Warriors colors. It can't be Cal colors. I mean, you're going to have to like, g- enough with the blue and gold. Here's what you need to wear in there. So I guess my husband decided that I was going to take this opportunity. I hadn't decided that. And so I told him, I said, well, I need you to grab your iPad. I'll grab mine. We got to read up on what's going on before I get to his office. And honestly, by the time I got to the Mavs office, I had decided, hmm, I'm probably not going to do this. I mean, if everything in this Sports Illustrated article is true, what woman in her right mind wants to work here, if it's true? And Mm -hmm. so my husband's like, well, let's just go in and talk. And I will tell you, I got the warmest greeting from the receptionist. And then from Mark, and then we talked for about 55 minutes about what was going on at the Mavs, and he told me what he wanted me to do. He told me, you know, he had got my name from some folks, and he said, I need help here. And he was so sincere about really wanting to help. He told me some things that he had heard, you know, that were going on. He had met with the employees that morning, and frankly, he was, he was broken. He was broken. And so I asked him a lot of questions because I'm trying to honestly make sure, you know, he's not a pro- part of the problem. And I told him, I said, my brand is important to me. I've spent 36 years, you know, trying to work on it. Uh, my brand is important to me and I, I can't give it up uh, coming into an organization, you know, with these kind of issues. And so I need to pray about it. Left his office. Two women stopped me on the way out of his office. Uh, told me some of their stories and why, and they asked me if I was the person, you know, who Mark said was going to come in and talk to and, you know, help them. And so I went home and prayed about it. Came back the next day and Mark, I was there for three hours before Mark even knew I was there. Because as I walked in, employees just started talking to me. I found a conference room and for three hours, they were just coming in talking to me. And then finally he came in. He said, I didn't know you had come back. And so I said, yeah, I guess the answer is yes. I said, yes. And it just dawned on me, you know, even when I was praying and talking to people, for some reason, I was just uniquely qualified to to do it, to pull a team together. I had worked on cultural transformation. I had led people and I just felt called to do it at that time for the sisterhood. Now, it ended up being broader than that, but I just felt like, okay, whatever else I think I'm getting ready to do, I'm putting it on hold because this is obviously what the Lord needs for me to do right now. Well, now I get to talk to you. Well, for people who don't know what was going on with the Mavericks a couple of years ago, a hugely misogynistic background and a a very uncomfortable place for women. Uh, So in a nutshell, just let people know what had been going on before you walked in that door. Yes, uh, it was a place where uh, there was uh, sexual harassment. And I'm not going to say alleged because. Uh, an investigation was launched and we did our own investigation as well. Uh, But we had outside investigators uh, that confirmed that there uh, were years, uh, 18 plus years of sexual harassment and not treating women very well and a a very bad culture uh, Mm -hmm. in the Dallas Mavericks at the hands of a few people. 
Uh, but, you know, if, if it's starting at the top, then it just yeah. makes for a bad culture. And so then there were just uh, things going on, people doing just things, you know, inappropriate types of things, the way they were treating people, bully type of behavior, uh, absence of HR processes, lack of accountability, uh, favoritism, just stuff. Everything you just do not want to find in a workplace. Do you think think that um, those problems held the team back from actually winning another championship for that time? I mean, how does it all weave into the business of basketball? Well, you know, this was all going on on the business side. Mm -hmm. And the business side, it's not like this anymore, but the business side was very separate from the basketball side. So they were in their silo. They didn't work together a lot. And this is based on what some of the folks on the basketball side are telling me. In fact, one of the first things the coach said to me, uh, Coach Carlisle, is I want us to work together. And I said, we absolutely will work together. And so I'm very proud of that, that we're all together now. But this was going on on the business side. And so not a whole lot of people knew about it. Uh, The basketball side was doing their own thing. And I, and I will say, I, I believe the culture that we have now is a good one and we all work together because it's basketball and the business of basketball and it all has to come together. And I do believe when there's a bad culture, it will stop you from winning. Now, did it stop our team from winning? I mean, we won a championship in 2011, uh, but we haven't won one since then. But I'm sure uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. But stand by because one will be coming soon. Ah, there you go. And again, come end of July, you get your chance again. The Mavericks are going to Orlando, where the NBA will once again start up that season, which had been frozen in time. It's the weirdest thing in the world what this coronavirus has done for so many organizations, not just sports, but for the NBA. We all remember that Utah Jazz-Oklahoma Thunder game a couple of months ago where one player tested positive and the whole game just stopped. They turned out the lights, they sent everybody home. What was that moment like for you when you heard about it, saw it? I don't know if you saw it in real time. Tell me. Oh, yes. We were playing that night. We were playing when it was announced that the season was getting ready to shut down. So we had been on a call earlier that day uh, with the league and it wasn't, the decision had not been made to shut down the season. We were just all preparing. We already had a business continuity plan in place, but We've had ours in place pretty much ever since I've been there because it's just something I learned at AT&T. You always have to have a plan in place for whatever, whatever the crisis is. You just plug yeah. in the name. But so we were okay. And so we had a meeting uh, earlier that day and just said, you know, I told Mark, we're, we're prepared for whatever happens. So we're prepared. So we're actually in the game and it comes across the wire. Our guy, uh, Scott, our media person, our PR person, he gets the news. He texts me. I text Mark. He goes to take the call over to Mark. And we're like, oh, my gosh, it is going to shut down right now. When this game is over, we're not playing again until Lord knows when. And but we were ready, though. We immediately I had a few things I want to make sure happened whenever, you know, we did make the decision. And that is we want to make sure our people knew that they were going to get paid. We didn't want anybody to think they were going to have a you know, financial crisis on top of a public health crisis. Hmm. So we want to make sure people knew that. Uh, I huddled my team, the very, my staff, the very next morning and said, okay, uh, we're on hiatus. You guys are prepared to work at home. We have all the technology. We've been working, doing all this for the past year and a half, getting us ready. You're going home. I need you to go home. Those of you who have kids, you need to think about what's going to happen with your kids because people can't work. I mean, we couldn't expect anybody to come in 
and really be productive the next day. So we said, do what you need to do. And by noon, go home and we'll get back to you and let you know the next steps. Uh, but, you know, we could be working at home for a while. We don't know. But we were ready. And then we want to make sure, you know, we had counselors in place and all that um, and all the health, you know, information that people needed. Mm -hmm. Gave them the plan. I met with my team. It was Friday the 13th, my mother's birthday. Uh, <laughs> and and it, was, it was Friday the 13th, my mother's birthday, because I remember we were going to have a game that Saturday the 14th. And it was an early game, which was unusual. And I was going to fly to California and surprise her for her birthday. So I was on my way back to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I just so happened to have a physical because I have them twice a year um, ever since, you know, I was sick. And the doctor, and I told the doctor, he says, oh, you're looking great. Everything's great. What are you doing this weekend? I said, well, actually, I, uh, you know, the season was suspended, but I'm actually flying to California tomorrow to see my mother. And my doctor said, no, you're not. So you're not doing that. He said, there could be five or six people on that plane with COVID. You can't do that. You have a compromised immune system. You cannot do that. So that was kind of like startling to me. I thought, wow, this is real. And I didn't like that. And I kind of don't like people telling me what to do. But he's the doctor. So I had to listen to him. And I left his office. And then I went to my office and met with my team. And I said, this is pretty serious. So let's just map out what we need to do here. Um, and then uh, we put our plan in place to make sure the players had activities and all that. And then it dawned on us the following week, you know what? We may not be playing the game of basketball, but we're going to be playing the game of life with people. Good. Because good. There are all kinds of people who will need us, all kinds of community needs, kids uh, who need to get uh, technology so they can learn, uh, nonprofits who will need us, who are focused on feeding people. I mean, just in a race. So then we put a whole community plan together and, uh, and we launched it. So we've been uh, playing a game of life with people. But right. now we get to play the game of basketball at the end of the year. Yeah, which leads me to my final roundup here. Are you going to be with that limited number that the NBA says each team can bring to Orlando, where you all will have to quarantine and then play and you've got to be limited and stay in the hotels and, and all of that? I won't be there because I will be here with the staff on the business side making sure that we're trying to pull off, you know, we're going to pull off uh, a great experience for our folks here in Dallas, even though they will be playing in Orlando. And so we've got to be innovative and creative and figure out how to bring them an experience. Uh, and, and we're working on that. Uh, so I'll be here with uh, my team and we'll be rooting for them there. I'll probably have maybe two people from my staff there because okay. what I love about what the NBA is doing, it, doing they're keeping it very limited. I mean, we, we are still in a global pandemic. Uh, so it'll just be the people that have to be there, the players, the coaches, the trainers. Uh, I don't need to be there. I can do so what I need. Well, tell me how you're going to make the experience good for people, because there will be no audience members, no fans in the, in the stands. Well, no fans in the stands, but what we, we hope, I mean, obviously we're going to broadcast it. And we're, we're just thinking about creative stuff. Like, are there some big venues? Like how we did with our courageous conversations. We had people there, 200 people, six feet apart. Can we create some venues like that? And we don't know yet. We don't know yet. We're working with it. But can we take some big, you know, parking lots and create some venues like that? Uh, what can we do to bring that experience? And so we're going to do something. So just stand by, sister. It's coming. Oh, tailgate. I'm yeah. going to Dallas. No, tailgate. I mean, <laughs> you, 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 you've been tailgating. Okay. But I mean, we got to do it with mask on and yeah. socially distant and all that. But there's a way to do it. We're, we're going to create an experience. It's going to be right. awesome. I want you, because you're such an optimist and you're so motivational, to leave my listeners with the one characteristic you feel 
everybody who's hoping for great success in their life should really aim to have and to embrace. I think what you have to, first of all, I tell people, and I tell this at commencements, I used to always have big dreams, always have big positive dreams, not just for yourself, uh, but for people around you and for the type of country that we want to live in. And then once you have those big dreams, decide what role you will play, truly as an individual, what role you will play uh, to make that dream a reality. Focus on it, pray about it, and then act. And so those are the four words that I live by, dream, focus, pray, and act. Sint, what an honor to have you here with us. I am so inspired by your story, but I feel better about the world, I think, knowing that people like you are very much at the forefront, talking to people and dealing head on with these massive issues that we are all trying to digest, swallow, understand, you name it. So thank you for being on Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you. You're, you're the bestest. Thank you. Go Bears. Go Mavs. That's right. That's right. Go Bears. Thank you very much. And go Mavs. Thanks to all of you, no matter which team you're cheering for. We are thrilled that you're listening and hope that you really glean something from each and every one of these. And of course, for my show, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network. Join me. Come hang out on the Claiming Countdown. I'll see you next time. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.